I got one person that's excited. I guess the rest of you can go home now, and I'll just, me and, me and Sherry will have a time. It'll be great. So I get to preach today. And as you know, many of you know, if you've been around me a while, and I haven't got to preach for, oh, say, three or four weeks, I tend to get a little wordy. And I have a lot to say, and I feel like the Holy Spirit's put a lot of things on my heart. And guess what? That's what happened this week. I wrote this sermon. I spent the entire week, and when I got to the end of this thing, I had like three sermons written up. I mean, all in one. We could be here until the Super Bowl kickoff. Yeah. (laughs) I know. People are like cringing because you know I'll do it, right? You know I'd do it. I like to hear my own voice. Um, but I think the reason that that happened is because we, we're starting something new, and I feel like the Lord has really been working this in my heart for several months. And we came to sermon series planning this last week with the, the preaching team, and I came to it feeling a little bit like, oh, I don't know if I've got this. I don't, I don't know if I'm hearing from the Lord. And, and our time together was so rich and so like spirit-led that at the end of it, I was just really, really excited. Like, oh, yes, I am hearing from the Lord on this. We are going somewhere together. And uh, so we're titling this new sermon series, Surprise Your, and really world is the big line, but home, neighbor, church, world. We're going to talk about five simple practices that will surprise the world. And I'm going to tell you why here in a second. Uh, Let's start by opening your Bible to John chapter 1. We're going to be looking at John chapter 1, and and if we have time, we're going to get to Acts chapter 2 and 3, maybe. So basically what I've done is I pitched that five, well, it was like a 12-page sermon. I pitched it, and I'm going to be speaking from the heart this morning and speaking from my gut. I've got my journal. I've got uh, a a half-typed outline that has next to nothing on it, and I have my Bible, and I have my heart and the Holy Spirit. (laughs) So what I want to do is I just want to invite the Holy Spirit into this moment before we read the text that we might hear from the Lord today. Because that's why you guys are here, right? I mean, as great as singing to the Lord is, and as great as hearing me speak is, hearing from God is why we come to church. And so we want to hear from Him this morning. So let's just pray and invite the Spirit to speak to us. Lord, we just open ourselves to you this morning. Your word says that when Jesus left, he sent the Holy Spirit to walk alongside of us, to be our helper, to lead us into all truth, and to teach us to walk in it. So God, we pray that in this moment, our ears, our eyes, our hearts, our souls would be open to hear from you, to follow you, to hear your truth, and to stand in it this morning. In Jesus' name, we all said, amen. So the book of John uh, is a gospel. It's the, Audrey, are you eating again? Jeff, would you two quit crackling back there? Okay, now I can preach. Okay, so the book of John is one of the four gospels, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible. The gospels are the stories of Jesus, and this is the fourth and oldest story of Jesus that we have. It is written by John, one of the disciples, lit, written at the end of his life. He actually lived the longest. So this is somewhere around 70 to 80 years after Jesus left. And so it's got a lot of time. John's had a lot of time to reflect on what he saw and what he heard and what happened afterward. And now he goes back and he writes the beginning of this story. So it begins with this great song, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it just begins describing Jesus as God's Word to the world. And then it goes on to talk about Jesus' cousin, John, who 
baptized people in the desert and prophesied that Jesus was coming. And Jesus finally shows up on the scene after being living 30 years as a carpenter in the desert in a little tiny podunk town like Washtuckna, building things for people, learning God's word, being formed in the temple daily. And he comes onto the scene and John sees him as he's baptizing people. And he says, that's the guy. That's the son of God. That's the son of man. That's the one that you all need to be following. Talking to these disciples he had, these followers. And so the followers that he had immediately said, well, if that's the son of God, if that's the one that you've been prophesying about, we need to follow that man. So we're going to pick this up in verse 35, and we're going, to, we're going to go from there. And I'll just read kind of basically some of what happened there and what happens after this moment. Verse 35, the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus and he walk, as he walked by, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following him. And said to, what, are you a couple of creepers? No. What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Now that is creepy. Let's just be honest. Who says that? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and they saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was the 10th hour. It was late. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's son, Simon Peter. Peter is the guy that walks on water later. Peter is the rock that the church is founded on much later. Peter is the man who winds up in Rome and that the popes and and the Catholic church say, that's the guy that we follow. That's the, the man whose shoulders we stand at. We are the line of Peter. So that's that person. He first found his own brother, Simon, and he said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. He He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked to him, and he said, Simon, the son of John, you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter, which also means rock. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip, and he said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethesda, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael. And he said to him, we have found him who Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. This is my favorite line probably in the whole book of John. He says this, Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and he said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered, Before Philip called you, before he talked to him, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, this is to all of the disciples standing there, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. In other words, he's saying, you will see God's glory on earth. Why did I read that passage to you? You may be asking yourself. I was reading this passage several months ago and I kept coming back to it. I kept feeling the Holy Spirit drawing me to this place, especially to this man, Nathaniel. 
One of the disciples we believe is actually the disciple Bartholomew. Um, if you memorize the 12 disciples, you'll be like, who is Nathaniel? He isn't listed in there, but Nathaniel and Bartholomew are the same person. And, and after the death of Jesus, Bartholomew goes on to be one of the greatest missionaries of all time. He is the first missionary to India, where he is believed to have been executed in horrible, horrible ways there, but bringing the good news of Jesus to a part of the world that had never heard it or ever seen it before. First one to ever go there. He is this man who begins with this sense of skepticism. He is a a knowledgeable man. The word here says that he was underneath a fig tree, and it's just this weird imagery that the Bible uses. It actually describes how how the uh, rabbis of their day studied, which, you know, it sounds pretty nice to me. Go outside, sit underneath a palm tree or a fig tree, and study the scriptures. And that's what Nathaniel was doing in the privacy of his own home, in the privacy of his backyard, where other people couldn't see him, but Jesus had this knowledge from the Lord. The Holy Spirit spoke to him and said, this is what's going on here. This is this man, Nathaniel. And when Jesus said, hey, Nathaniel, I saw you, and he's like, nobody could see me, he responds with this radical confession of, you must be God if you saw me back there. You must be God if you knew this about me, that I am an Israelite in whom there is no deceit, who wants to follow God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. You must be the Son of God. And so he follows Jesus, and it leads him in this life that's incredible, an incredible, incredible life. That's the text, and I'm going to come back to it in a second. But now I want to flash forward in the history of the world and the history of the church, about 1,500 years. So let's all hit fast forward. Pretty good, huh? I could do whale sounds too, but I'm not going to. That's the fast forward sound. We fast forwarded 1,500 years, and we're, going to also, we're also going to jump continents all the way up and over from the Middle East, boom, to Germany, okay, 1,500 years ago. There's a young man who is a Catholic priest at this point. In fact, at this point in the history, there was one church, the Catholic Church. So if you're a former Catholic or a non-practicing Catholic or a Catholic who's seeking, this is your family. And if you are a Protestant, this is your family too, because this is where our history goes back to the Catholic Church, and there's this priest, and he is in the Catholic Church, and he's serving, and he is seeing how the abuses of the church of the day are being heaped upon these people. They are being taxed, basically, out of house and home to, to have gold and ornate uh, chapels and ornate uh, cathedrals and to keep the Pope really wealthy and really powerful. They're being called out on crusades and, and given, given the dispensation. So like if you go out on the crusade and you kill a whole bunch of people, all the sins that you've ever done before, we can, we can just abolish those. And, then, and they also keep the scriptures close. They take the Bible, they keep it in Latin, not even in its original language, but it's been translated in Latin. The priests come to church, people come to worship God, and it's all read in Latin. Nobody can read it. Nobody understands it. They're just saying magic words. In fact, that's where the words hocus pocus come from. Did you know that? There's a point in the, the communion service where the priest holds up the host, which is the bread in the communion service, and he says these words, and there's these two words in there, hocus proctor, which is this moment at which this piece of bread is supposed to be transformed into the body of Jesus as we take it into us. And it began to change, and it said, oh, look, it's magic. The priest turned magically, turned bread into the body of Jesus, and it's hocus pocus is the word we use. And so now magicians use the word hocus pocus, and they pull a rabbit out of their hat. Interesting story, I know. You're all like, wow, that's really fascinating. 
I'm really bored. That's okay. We're going to keep going. So this guy, he gets upset about all this. And he goes into his, what's what would be a chamber or a cell, probably a dirt floor with a little desk, and he sits down and he begins to write 95 things he's ticked off about, about how the church is operating. And he gets up and he marches out of his house and he goes down to the church with a great big red door in Wittenberg, Germany, and he nails this piece of paper to the door and it's called the 95 Theses, and that man's name was Martin Luther. Martin Luther started a revolution in the church. He said, the church is changing, but it's not changing fast enough, and we have got to get this fixed. Gosh, he's not a very good-looking guy, is he? And then he wrote that, which nobody can read. Sorry. Yeah, you know, back in the 1500s, things were different. So, yeah, he's, he just looks so suspicious. I mean, who's he even looking? I think he's looking at you, Angela. He's like, hmm, that's kind of what it looks like. Anyway, so he, he is the guy that we say is the first reformer in the church who reformed things, and we have the Protestant church now because of this. He split from the Roman Catholic Church. And in the beginning of this document, and as he began preaching to people and telling about this document, the 95 things that he thinks the church has got wrong and we need to change, and he, he uses Scripture, and he is right, and a lot of good things came out of this. One thing that he says is this. He says, here I stand. Here I stand. That's my, this is my position paper, my theses of life, my theses of the church. Here I stand. And that has been the anthem of the church for the next 500 years. Here I stand. The church began to fracture because he said, I stand here, and the Catholic Church says, no, we stand here. But then you had the Quakers begin to stand over here, and the Monrovians begin to stand over here, and the Baptists began to stand over here. And everybody began to say, no, here I stand. Here I stand. We shifted from a communal mindset of what church and following Jesus looks like, like the Catholic Church had originally fostered, which had been brought in at the time of Jesus... And it began to be an individual decision. We voluntarily chose what we were going to stand and fight for, what hill we were going to die on, which point, fine, fine point of theology we were going to say, no, this is it. And the church fractured. And we went from one church to two churches, from two churches to ten churches, to some 5,000 denominations around the world today, all calling themselves Christians. And that is not to say that everybody's idea of theology is wrong, okay? Everybody's got different ideas, different ways of understanding what Jesus said, different ways of understanding what's going on in the Old Testament, what God's getting at. We have some common values that are the same, but we differ on some little points, and that's just fine. You know, not everybody's going to have perfect theology, like me. The reality is that, and I've said this before, that you know, 80% of my theology is dead on, and 20% of it's complete heresy. The problem is I don't know which is which, and neither do you. We're left to figure this out. Here I stand has fractured the church, and it's focused us on an individual mindset of how we approach faith in God. So we choose a church based on what makes us happy, what I agree with. So now every website for every church out there has got a statement of belief, except for ours. I'm sorry. And I've always not put one of those on there just because of this. Because if you have to pick a church based on exactly what you agree with, well, then you're going to come and you're going to disagree with us on something eventually and leave. So 
we want to be a community that is open, that wrestles with faith, that wrestles with theology, and, and, and so we keep it open and honest. But we choose churches based on what we believe. We choose churches based on how good the music is, how great the small group program and structure is, how good the children's ministry is, how great and fabulous our youth ministry is. And we look for all this package, this complete package of a community that I can come stand in, and it's most convenient for me. And there's nothing wrong with finding a place that meets the needs of your life. But here I stand has driven the church apart rather than brought us together. Now, you may have heard it said that Christianity, Christendom, the dominant cultural narrative of Christianity in our world that says it's right to do this, it's wrong to do this, everybody goes to church on Sunday, nobody goes to uh, the bar on Sunday, where Christianity dictated the culture, that's Christendom, you may have heard it said that Christendom is dead, that that dominant cultural narrative has ended, and it's true. This here I stand statement, anthem, is no longer serving us very well because the culture says, oh, but here, here I stand, and you stand over there, and I'm going to stand here. And what's happened now is you've got whole parts of culture that, that get in literal fistfights over this stuff. We were doing Rooted the other night, and we were talking about creation, and then we have a scientist in our group who just said, I just wish God was a little more detailed here because so many people have gotten upset about what is said in Genesis chapter 1. Was it a literal seven days? Was it a figurative seven days? Did God use evolution? Did God not use evolution? It doesn't say. It just says he created, and then it happens. And so now you've got a scientist here that says, here I stand. Evolution is the truth. And you've got a Christian over here who reads the Bible, how they say literally, it says, here I stand. No, God said it. It happened in seven days, and these two never come together. We need a new anthem for the church today. We need a new slogan and I want to propose one. Instead of here I stand, how about we try out there we go. There we go. To move from here I stand to there we go. When the disciples come to Jesus in John chapter 1, the first question, and Jesus says, what do you want, right? Why are you following me? And they say to him, where are you going? Where, where are you staying? Where are you headed? Which way are you going? This is the question culture is really asking today. This is the question our world is asking. What are you doing? What, you, you go to a church that's in a movie theater, and there are no windows. Okay, that's creepy, guys. The only places that don't have windows are not good places to go. Okay? We've got some windows out front, and we try to stay out front there, but we, we don't know what's going on there. What are you doing inside? What kind of magic hocus-pocus do you have going on in there? Where are you going? What are you doing? When we take our focus and shift it from here in this church, this body, this theological tower that I really like, this, this, this uh, moral code that I follow, these things that I've developed from reading the Scripture, here I stand, and we change it to there, we shift the focus from the church or a belief or an issue and we shift it to an outward focus, to there, to somebody else, to someplace else, to the world. That's what, exactly what Jesus said. He said, come and follow me. And then what did he do? He went out to a hillside. And we have the greatest sermon ever preached right there, 
where he preached the, 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 the Sermon on the Mount, where we get the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And we get, you're to be salt and light. And we get all these teachings. And we get, then we begin to get healings where people are touched. And it's happening in the streets and next to the farm and over by the temple and, and down the road by the, the gate that's called Beautiful and by a, by a big pool where people are going, hoping that an angel is going to touch the water and heal him. And Jesus shows up and he says, what are you doing? And they're like, we can't see. We need to be healed. And he says, boom. And it's all out. It's all there, not here. It's not here beside the water where Jesus began. The church has always been moving since Jesus set it in motion, since Jesus first took that first step and those disciples followed behind him. It's like Star Trek tractor beam. You guys know Star Trek and the tractor beam thing? You know, it's like this weird beam and it's magnetic or something. It pulls whole spaceships and asteroids and things like that. It's like Jesus is this Star Trek tractor beam and he starts pulling people and it begins to follow him and it becomes not a monument but a movement. A movement of people that don't say, here I stand. We say, there we go. We're going there. We're going outward. We're going into our neighborhoods, our workplace, our family, our community. We're being pulled toward people who need Jesus. Where is this all heading? It's heading to the kingdom of God. It's heading to wholeness. When Jesus began to preach, it says this in three of the four Gospels, the first thing that Jesus ever preaches is this, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Heaven has come to earth. You're looking at it, pal. And if it doesn't look like this, then it's sin, it's brokenness, it's, 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 it's distorted, it's not who you were intended to be. As you follow in that tractor beam of Jesus, you're moving toward where all of heaven is moving, where all of earth is moving, toward the future toward heaven, toward wholeness, toward restoration. There we go. Where are we going? We're moving toward heaven. Second word in that, there, where are we headed? We, us, not I, not my belief structure, not this is the thing that I think. We can have a lot of eyes and still be a we. In fact, this church is so awesome because of that. I mean, during the last election, I kind of figured we'd come to church and have fistfights between the Hillary Clinton supporters and the Donald Trump supporters, and we didn't. We had hugs because they're both here, both sides of the aisle. Both things are here. The church used to focus in the, in the Christendom situation on the I, the individual beliefs, but now we need to be a people who focuses on we, a church who says, this is who we are, This is how we live. This is how we walk through life based on what we read in the Bible. We may disagree on some things, but together we are a family of God. We are a people who are unique. Each one of you in this room is so unique. I've said it before, you were one in seven billion. And Heidi and I were walking just the other day, and she goes, yeah, it's like you said, one in seven billion, and suddenly it was like lightning struck my brain, and God said, no, no, your math is way off, dude. It's way bigger than that, because it's all time and history, too. So from the first human being to the very last human being, plus all of the human beings that have ever lived and ever existed, I can't even do that math. So one in how many quadrillions? I don't know. You are that unique genetically. You are the unique in your passions. You are unique in your gifting. You are unique in your calling. You are unique in your personality. We did a funeral for Heidi's grandfather the other day, or a couple weeks ago, and one of the things that I wrote into the, the, the sermon thing is in this prayer is like, God, there is nobody like this man ever again who will call out from us the things that he called out. There's nobody else who will, who will draw from us 
the, the joy, the sadness, the hope, the, the lack of hope. No, nobody ever like this one individual. And that is true of each of you. You are unique. And you have an unrepeatable destiny. You have a call to fulfill in this world that nobody else will ever be able to fill. You have a pair of shoes that fit nobody else, that has to walk roads that nobody else will ever walk down. You are special, and yet you can't do it by yourself. You need we. If you notice, when Jesus calls the disciples, it's always in pairs. There's always two of them standing around. One goes and gets another, and they come together. When Jesus sends them out, it's always in pairs or or threes or seventies. When the church is born, it's not one individual. It's 80 plus in a room that the Holy Spirit comes upon. When the disciples are going out all through the book of Acts, they never are alone. You never hear, and John was out healing the sick. You hear, no, Peter and John are out healing the sick. You don't hear a missionary is sent out. You don't hear Paul went out. You hear, no, Paul and Barnabas went out. Paul and John Mark went out. It's always we in the scriptures. Never I. And when you read Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, this fabulous, profound description of what the church was right after the Holy Spirit came, what you hear is this word, they, over and over and over again. They gathered together in their homes and ate and broke bread together. They worshiped together daily in the temple. They sold their possessions and gave to everyone who had need. They learned from the apostles' teaching. They, 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 they. And then it switches to this word, all. All the people. They had everything in common. All the people that were not a part of them were impressed. We. Church is not an individual event. It's a team sport. You need others to shoulder the weight of your life, to help you carry your unique calling in this world. I know that there exists great tradition in history. If you're like a church history buff, like I kind of try to be, I like church history, of the, of the desert fathers and mothers. Was, uh, in the Middle Ages, people said that the world was just so awful, that, that sin was so great, that the only way they knew to not fall into the temptations that the world offered them was to just get away from it. You know, I kind of fit in that category. I'd, I just, I want to get away. I want to fly away. Sorry, I just go back into the 80s music. But, you know, these guys and gals rushed off into the desert and they lived in caves so that they could escape sin and live on their own and grow in their faith. Now, there's this great tradition of them doing that. But to my knowledge, that is the only time in all of history where Christians really tried living out their faith alone. All the rest of the time, it was we. It was us. It worked well in their day to go into a cave and to pray for days on end, and then they'd come out actually and serve the poor together with other desert fathers and mothers, so it was never truly an alone thing. But it may have worked well for them to do that, but in our day and age today, our day, our way, the way we need to live in this world and what the world needs to have is a we. I have yet to see a successful Christian who has lived their faith out alone. I'm just going to worship at home. I'm just going to go worship in the woods by myself. I'm going to have me and God time. Well, that's good, and being in the woods is great, and taking hikes is wonderful, and yes, you do hear from the Lord in those places, but you are shaped and transformed in community. The Bible says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. We've got to rub shoulders with each other. 
We need one another. We need to get ticked off at each other so that the hard edges of our lives can be rubbed away. We need we. And the world needs we. The world is looking, hey, where are you going? And we're like, well, I'm going to the woods to pray. Well, that's interesting. But when they look at a gathering of people who are together moving towards something, then their attention begins to shift a little bit. And they begin to go, why would you all do that together? Why would you all learn from the Bible together and get into... Why would, why would you, a dyed-in-the-wool Democrat, read the Bible with a dyed-in-the-wool Republican and with a group of people in between who don't know what they believe at all anyway? Why would you do that? It's Jesus. Suddenly, we becomes a witness. We are called individually, uniquely, to live together as a culture of people moving toward the future, toward Jesus, toward God, toward wholeness, toward the kingdom of heaven, together. Not in our individual seats, our individual homes, our individual places, together in community. The last word is this, go. There, toward the future, we go. The church has always been about action and movement, For every theological debate in ivory tower, for every crusade, for every witch hunt, there has been monks who have been living amongst the people, who have been going into the homes of the sick, who have been dying because of the plague, who have been living amongst the poorest and the the lost and the dejected. There have been people who go on mission to to rescue girls out of sex trafficking rings, who, who go around the world into other religions and other religious cultures who hate Christians in order to invite, to pull, to draw, to share Jesus. The church has always been a movement not a monument. It's time for the church to go for a hike and not say, here we stand. Here I go to church. Instead, it's to say, there, there we go. From Abraham, God says to him, go to a place I will show you. To Moses, who says, to God says, you are going to set my people free. How am I going to do that? I will show you how, and I will show you great wonders. Go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go, and then the people go, and they wander in the desert always moving, never stopping. They stop and they sleep and they move and they stop and they sleep and they move and they keep going and going and growing toward Jesus, toward God. Then you have Jesus come follow me. And then Jesus leaves the world and he says, go into all the world. And not just sit there in Jerusalem. Don't just stay where you're at. Go into the world. And then Acts, you see them moving forward into the world in joy. We, in the same way we, have been called to go. You have been placed in this moment. In some ways, we've arrived. Do you realize that? In some places, you've arrived because God's brought you through the course of your life, from your birth and whatever place you had, through your family of origin, through all the pain and suffering that you went through in that, through all the blessing and goodness that you had in that, all of your addictions and failures, your children, your lack of children, all the things that you've done in your life have brought you to this moment and this place in history. You've arrived. Now what? You look around and you say, why have I arrived here? Why has I, have I been set in this place? Where am I to go next? And to who am I to go to? Because you are sent. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's the little Christ 
But it goes on to say that you are a missionary, which means a sent one, sent by Jesus into the world to be your unique self and your unique point in history to bless those who are with you. You have been sent, and it's time for you to take a walk. Here we go. A new anthem for our church, for our, hopefully for our world. You guys with me still? I got an amen. There's a lot of like, huh, or I don't know. That's okay. Because really, this is how I want to live. This is how actually my family have been living for quite some time now. We came to this church almost 10 years ago with a there we go mindset. And I think along the way through the hits and the bruises and the bumps and the stalls and the highs and the buys, probably more the highs and the buys than anything, you kind of get to this place where suddenly it's like you're a ship on the water and your sail goes slack. And you're like, oh. And as I've been praying, God, what are we to speak on? What are we to do? The Lord dropped this in my heart. It's time for this church to say, there we go together again. To begin reimagining life as a family, a life as a community that lives as a testament to the world, that surprises the world. That's what I love about the John story with Nathaniel. Jesus, you know, he's, he's right there and, and he says, you know, Philip says to him, I, we found the guy, we found him, he is Jesus of Nazareth. And what's his response? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I love that statement because I think that's the exact word we hear today when people look at the church. They say, can anything good come out of the followers of Jesus of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of a building titled church? Can anything good come out of this religion, this worldwide religion called Christianity? Is anything good coming out of it? Because there's been a lot of bad coming out of it over the years. A lot of bad. Many of you have experienced the abuse and the pain of being a part of church. And you're here and you're just like, I'm just going to check it out for a little while. I'm wobbling. I'm hurt. But I'm just going to hang here because I still believe that Jesus is somebody, I, 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 he's somebody I'm impressed with. And I, I need to know more. There's got to be something more to this. We as a community, as a church, are being called to form a way of life that surprises the world, that sort of shocks people. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Then when Jesus just dumps it on him because he's hearing from God and he says, this is where you were, this is what you were doing. And, and Nathaniel is absolutely surprised. He's shocked. You go to Acts chapter 2. And you hear what's going on. And Acts chapter 2 is a fun one because it's like eight or nine years packed just into the first three chapters. So when you read it, it's like everything's happening all at once. And we can get kind of upset about church because it's like, it's not changing fast enough. It's like, come on, guys, give us eight or nine years and it's going to be different. It's going to grow and change. But you read this and what you hear is people being absolutely shocked by the way people were living, the way Christians were living. In fact, that was the first name of the church. Did you know that? It was called The Way. And what did it look like for people to live on the way? If you want to look, Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. I'm going to read it really fast because i got to get to something else still. I'm in Acts chapter 16. Faster. Come on, fingers. Here's what it says, Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. This is what it looked like for believers on the way, people following Jesus on his way. 
They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. The awe and awe came upon every soul. In other words, surprise. They were surprised at the many wonders and signs that were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to who? All, not just the church, but everybody who had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Generosity shocks the world. They were praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added their number to their number day by day, those who were being saved. So in other words, they were living in a radically transformed way. Generosity, eating together, selling things that were important to them, and giving the money away to anybody who had need. And it was shocking to the world. When the world looked, they said, can anything good come out of the followers of Jesus of Nazareth? Nobody was even asking that question at this point because everything that they saw was amazing. They were shocked. They were surprised at how people lived. They were, were just bowled over. They were living in awe of what God was doing through these people. And it was because of how they lived. Empowered by the Holy Spirit to bless the world. Because blessed people bless. Empowered by the Holy Spirit to share a common table, even with their enemies. That's from the book of Psalms. You prepare a table for me, a feast in the presence of my enemies. We eat together and we are connected by this common thing called food. In the power of the Holy Spirit, listening to what God is speaking and following Him in His ways. In the power of the Holy Spirit, learning new ways, new things that we need to grow. As we're transforming and learning to live a new way of life, we've got to learn from the Spirit new ways of being. And it says that they were spending the Sabbath day together in the temple, resting, delighting, learning, hearing. Bells is what we call it. If you're going to grow some grapes or you're going to grow a, uh, my, one of my favorite trees is an espaliated apple tree. You guys know what those are? An espaliated apple tree, it's a way of, of pruning a tree. And the, what you do is it, it's pruned flat so you could do them in rows. You can do apple trees in rows that are completely flat and you can just go with a cart. And the Spanish do this. They just drive their little cart down and they pick the apples and throw them right there in the cart. And they're really beautiful. But to grow one, you have to have a trellis couple of posts with some wires, and then the branches are hung on that because the branches are never super strong with how much fruit they bear. They bear so much fruit that if it didn't have this structure, the tree would collapse. When we hear about the way, and when we hear about a rule of life, which is what that word trellis actually means, is a rule, that's what we're talking about, a way of life that supports us in bearing more fruit than we could ever imagine. And that's what I'm introducing to you today, and that's what the series for the next 10 weeks is going to, or 10 weeks, just like stretch that out, five weeks, we're just going to keep talking about it. The next five weeks, we're going to talk about simple practices that we can hang our lives on, that when we practice them, when we do these things, we're going to surprise the world if we together do this. This is the there to which we go.
being a people that surprise the world as they live life like this together. Now, this is a journey. I have a couple of quick notes. One on patience. Uh, recently, there was a study done on uh, internet movie watching. Internet movie watchers? Come on, raise your hands. Internet movie watchers? Okay. So they studied. You're like, wait. So they studied this internet movie th- business. And what they found out is, you know how, like, how long that the internet movie company has to show you that movie before you turn it off? You know how long? I guess. Two seconds. If they don't get that movie on the screen and running in two seconds, they start losing you. If they go stretch it to five seconds, 25% of the audience literally turns off the television. If it goes to 10 seconds, 50% turns off the TV. We are an impatient culture. We're talking about 10 seconds to take weeks and months worth of filming and editing and acting and, pa- and CGI and packing all of that into a digital thing and beaming it into space and then back to your house so that you can watch it instantaneously. on your. T- you didn't even have to leave your couch. You had to press the buttons on your remote. And even that, they're like, no, we'll just give you Alexa, and you can say, Alexa, play this movie for me. And they want to do that in two seconds. We are an impatient culture, and that impatience leaks into our faith. We want it now. But like I said, Acts chapter 2 and 3, that's like nine years worth of history. When this, this whole Acts chapter 2 business, of everybody was in awe and wonder of what was going on. It was like over the course of eight or nine years that this stuff took place. So be patient, because if you're not patient, you will always stay exactly as you are. You will never grow up in the faith. You will always be a baby Christian, or worse, you'll get bored with it and you will wander away. Patience is a gift of the Spirit. There's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Patience. The Spirit is working patience in us. And a note also on perfection. We have this idea that when we set up a way of life, we say, these are the things that we want to do that we have to do imperfectly or not at all. There's a lot of, how many perfectionists are in here? Like, we want everything to look just right all the time. You know, we got some biblical basis for this, right? Jesus says, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, so be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, thanks for giving us unachievable goal, Jesus. Thanks for throwing that one out there. I was reading this text and wrestling with it. I'm like, why did you say that to me? You know, I'm like, of all people, perfection. I want everything to be perfect, but it never is. I present it, and I think, oh, it's perfect. And then somebody goes, you misspelled eight things. And some of them use the same word. You misspelled them different ways. I'm like, oh, it's got to be perfect. I was wrestling with it, and I went, and as I always like, I try to do, I go look at the Greek. And that word perfect, when Jesus says, be perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect, it's not perfect in performance. It's not perfect in action. It's not perfect in words. It's not not cussing sometimes. It's not not getting angry. It's being perfect in mercy and in grace. Your heavenly Father is perfect toward you in mercy and in grace. You screwed up. I forgive you. Here's grace. Let's get up and walk together. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect toward yourself. 
as you read your Bible, as you, as you eat with other people, as you get into relationships and you dive into this stuff, don't get upset with yourself. Don't get impatient with you, but give yourself mercy and grace and give each other mercy and grace because it's going to surprise the world. I'm going to end with this. I'm supposed to introduce the first of the five simple practices. And lucky for you, I have preached on this so many times, I don't feel like I need to. The first practice that I want to invite you to journey with me onto or into is to bless people. Very simple. Just to be a blessing to the world around you. Here's the statement. Blessed people, bless people. How confusing is that, right? Say it with me so you're awake just for this last three minutes. Blessed people bless people. This is what we do. God blessed us so that we can bless others. Abraham, in the, in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 12, all the way back to Genesis. You got, I finally got there, got to Genesis. Genesis chapter 12, God says, Abraham, I will make you a blessing that you may be a blessing to others. The word blessing is a really weird word, actually. I mean, where else do we use it in culture? Christians, it's like our version of lucky, Right? You got, you got a non-Christian person, and he goes to the casino, and he goes, I was lucky today at the slot machines. And if you got a Christian person who, you know, gets over their whole gambling thing, and they go to the, the casino, and they hit the slot machine, they go, I was just blessed, right? I was just blessed. It's like magic. The word blessed is this old English word. We don't use it very much. And what it literally means is to add strength to one's arm. The image is like the Midas touch. So I could come down here and touch Josh's arm, and suddenly he's going to add a layer of muscle to it. I wish you folks had this gift. I wish my wife had this gift. Every back massage I've ever had from my wife, can you imagine how buff I'd be? It would just be blah. To bless literally means to touch somebody and to put some of your strength on them. Whatever strength God has given you, time, talent, gifting, passion, finances, you take that and you are to use it to put strength onto somebody else. So anything that lifts up somebody, anything that encourages somebody, anything that gives them strength to take the next step forward, anything that causes them to lift up their head so that they can see that Jesus is doing something in their life is a blessing. You have been blessed deeply and greatly and blessed people bless people. That's my sermon on blessing. Pretty simple, right? I have in my wallet today a couple of $5 bills. And I want to take a minute just in silence, because we like to do this, like to listen to the Holy Spirit. But here's the question I had. Like, if I was to give you this $5 bill, you know, the college students are going, that's coffee money. My high school daughter's going, I could put that in my gas tank. Dale's looking at it and going, five bucks? Come on, man. Get generous. I'm kidding. <laughs> if I was to give you a $5 bill to go from this place and bless somebody, what would you do with it? Who would you bless? Who might God be saying, hey, I want you to, to, to do this. I want you to just go share this with somebody. It could be, it could be like, oh, I would give that to Project Nourish because they're feeding people in Africa and they're starving. I would put that $5 to Project Nourish and bless those people. I've been sponsoring this kid in Taiwan for the last several years. It's 
living in poverty and needs an education, and I'd put that extra five bucks toward this kid in Taiwan. I would buy a person coffee at the coffee shop and just sit and have a conversation. I'm going to give you a minute to think. What would you do with five bucks to bless somebody else? Hopefully, some of you are having an aha moment. In fact, I'm kind of wondering, does anybody have an aha moment and want one of my $5 bills? Come on, don't be shy. Somebody want one? Come get it. You got somebody you're going to bless us with? Okay, Josh, you do it. That's not exactly what I had in mind, but you can talk about that later. Somebody else. It's not up to me. I don't care how this goes down. You could do this. Somebody else want to come take this? Come on. All right. You know what? My pastor, when I was a kid, he used to give out dollars. You could do, you can bless somebody else. Anybody can do this. I just gave you some extra strength, Kathy, and now you can bless somebody else. Some of you are going, I could do it myself. I don't need his five bucks. You know what though happens? You say, I don't need his five bucks, but then you don't have my five bucks and you don't do it. So today I'm going to call your bluff. When you leave this room, everybody in this room is getting five bucks. It's called a reverse offering, and you're going to go out these doors and flood this city with $5 blessings. $5 blessings is all it is. You can add to it, okay? You can add to it. I encourage you to add to it. Be generous, but go and bless the world. I could have bought one iPad, right? I could have bought an iPad, and I could have said, who wants to be blessed with this iPad? And that one person would be super blessed with that iPad until they got into their whole movie watching thing and got upset and just turned it off and put it away because it wasn't coming in two seconds. They, just one person would be blessed. But I could take that iPad and break it up into $5 bills, and this entire church here, we, there, we go, will bless the world. And so we're going to give you money as you walk out the door to bless somebody else. You're like, I didn't put money in the offering today. That's okay. Go and be a blessing. You bless this church when you give. You bless this world when you live. You bless your family when you cook, when you clean, when you encourage. You are a blessing at all times. Learn to see yourself that way and go and be a blessing and use this $5 to bless somebody else. That's my only... And we're also asking you to tell us what you did. That'd be really nice because I'd like to hear. So we're giving you a little card. I'm going to close with this. There's a, a poet, Bernard Beckett, and he wrote this. He says, Surprise is the public face of a mind that has been closed. One of the great accusations of the church is there are a bunch of closed-minded people. That's one of the greatest lies ever handed to us. Because we're like, yeah, we are closed-minded when it comes to this moral issue, or this theological point. But often, the world is actually much more closed-minded than we are. And when we go out of these doors today with our $5 bills in our hand, and we go into the coffee shop and we buy that person coffee just for a conversation, or we send it to a kid in Africa, or whatever you do with it, they're going to be surprised 
because they didn't think anything good could come out of the followers of Jesus of Nazareth. Today, you're going to prove them wrong. Together, that's our practice. So Jesus, I pray that you bless these people with creativity, with passion, with hope, with courage and boldness to stand up and do something with the five bucks that we are giving them today. I pray that you would go in the grace of our Lord. May his face shine upon you. May his countenance rest upon you and lift you up. And may he put in you his peace as you go from this place. Would you stand with me? We're going to sing the doxology to close. Pray.